So today we're in uh, part one of Mark chapter nine. So we'll cover the first 29 out of 50 verses, which will be the stories of the transfiguration, which is a profoundly, profoundly important section of scripture, along with uh, a scenario which uh, John Mark records in which the disciples were unable to cast one of the demons out of, uh, of a child. So. Uh, we'll talk about those two stories and uh, try to unpack them for all they're worth. As I said, um, the Transfiguration is so rich and important. Uh, to be frank with you, I'm really not sure that uh, after years of study, I even understand all that took place here. <coughs> so if I miss some things, forgive me. Um, but I'll try to show you all that I see here uh, up to this point in my life, um, but a really awesome, profoundly cool chapter. So in chapter nine, um, we closed with Jesus's teaching in chapter eight at the end with him calling the crowds, uh, saying that if anyone wants to become my follower, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And uh, he closes chapter eight with saying, if anyone is ashamed of him and his words, in uh, their adulterous and sinful generation, that the Son of Man would also be ashamed of that person when they come, uh, and when he comes with the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. So, of course, uh, with his um, his holy angels, we know uh, as is referenced in in as quoted from Enoch in the book of Jude. This is the reference to the end of time. Uh, we know that's what he's talking about. We know also, as we stated in that chapter, that this is a clear reference to uh, no place for cowardice in the Christian life and that those who um, are ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of them. Those who um, deny him and walk away from him, uh, he will deny as well. So um, he goes on to say in verse one, it says, and he said to them, and this is uh, the reason I give you a recap is this part of the same section really. Um, it says, and he said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Uh, this verse has been interpreted a variety of ways. There's really four main interpretations of this verse. I'll give you a couple and some things to consider as we try to discern what Jesus means by the kingdom of God coming in power. Initially, when I read it, what comes to mind is the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in which the power of God, the spirit of God for the kingdom of God is really poured out and people are experiencing that before their death. Um, another possible interpretation is that of the immediately following story of the transfiguration which is the order of events uh, for every single gospel. So for that reason uh, of this connectedness of this teaching and then the transfiguration, um, many have led that to believe that the transfiguration either is connected in some way uh, to this prophetic statement by Jesus or that it is in fact uh, the fulfillment of what he has to say and predict here um, another possibility is that this has to deal with Calvary 
And uh, some have rightly argued that the moment of Jesus's death is the moment that, uh, of course, uh, our sins are atoned for. It's the moment that Satan is defeated. It's the moment of um, really the establishing of the kingdom uh, happening and then his resurrection uh, being that confirmation. Uh, personally, uh, I'm really not quite sure. And, and to be frank with you, I think it's possible that all these things uh, could be seen as all being a fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, what I can tell you for certain is that uh, it is not a reference to, uh, as far as the uh, people experiencing the coming of the kingdom of God with power, it's not a reference to the second coming of, of Christ because uh, what Jesus says here in verse 1, he says, I tell you the truth that some standing here will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So uh, this would have been something that took place in the lifetime of the 12, the lifetime of whoever the some is. And so one way we could interpret this is to say, well, we know a couple things. We know it is some who will experience it, not all. Um, and we also know that this will happen uh, before they taste death or experience death. Um, and so uh, this could be, if it was uh, the reference to the transfiguration, there are three, as we'll go on to see, who experience um, a really a, a divinely uh, appointed revelation of who Jesus is. And in some sense could be said, the coming of the kingdom and power in the transfiguration, it's really the revelation. Um, so that could be argued what I think is going on here, um, if you're lost, uh, forgive me. What I think is going on here is that I think quite possibly, as I said, all of these things, I wouldn't see them as disjointed events that we need to somehow interpret and get the right interpretation. What I would encourage you to do um, is to see all of these things conjoined together, see all of these things as, as more unified in a singular event instead of seeing them as opposing ideas. See this all as the culmination of the kingdom of God. Uh, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's about to happen, it's right in front of you. And so in some ways, Jesus's kingdom is being established with his ministry and with his lifetime. Um, so don't, don't try to disjoint all of these, but rather I would encourage you to see it as a whole. See it as uh, the transfiguration is the confirmation uh, of Jesus, the ordination of Jesus, the um, proclamation by the Father, and as we'll go on to see Moses and Elijah of Jesus as the Son, um, and also that Calvary, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, likewise is him taking on that eternal crown. Uh, of glory uh, for uh, the sins of the world, him manifesting to the fullest extent the Isaiah 53 prophecy of the suffering servant. And uh, his resurrection is his taking up of that kingdom. And likewise, Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is sent, is in a very real sense, again, um, the, the kingdom of heaven being established on the earth with power. Uh, as the Holy Spirit is representative of that power. So if it is uh, Jesus' transfiguration, uh, this passage is true. If it's Pentecost, this passage is true. Uh, I think it's probably a combination of all these. So I'm just going to read this again. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, 
there are some standing here who will not experience or taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And so for this crowd, um, a large portion of them uh, experienced Pentecost, a large portion uh, of them you know, of course, saw and experienced the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And also there were a handful of them, three, who saw the transfiguration. Um, so I, I believe that it is a combination of, of maybe Calvary and uh, Pentecost that Jesus is speaking of. But the transfiguration is so vital and uh, important to this interpretation because it is the con confirmation that, that that is what's going on and, and about to take place in the very near future. So I think that's why we see this connection. Uh, this isn't an issue to fight over, to argue over, um, but uh, all these events are, are just powerful. They're beautiful. They're majestic. They are awesome and so telling. And I love this, uh, this passage. So um, th that's how I would explain verse 1. Again, like I said, all of the Gospels immediately um, take you right to the transfiguration story. So verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately, and he was transfigured before them. So I just want to stop right here. For uh, the six days later, if you study the Gospels, you'll find a slight a discrepancy or a different uh, explanation of one of the other Gospels, um, at least one, maybe others, um, says this is eight days later. And so what's going on here, uh, a real easy answer to that seeming contradiction is um, the different Gospel authors are going by different times of day as their calendar. So if you know Jewish context, this will make sense. The Jewish day, as, as I've explained uh, previously in other videos, starts in the evening and then goes on to the morning of the next day. So the Jewish day, it starts at sunset. We get this from a, really a place in Deuteronomy for Jews, but, but mainly I would point you to the Genesis narrative in chapter 1. If you read Genesis chapter 1, which you'll see for every creation day, out of all the seven days, there's evening to start out with. Then there's morning the first day or the second day, third day. That's what it says for all of them. So uh, Jewish people in like manner of Genesis 1 interpreted their days and started their days at sunset. Um, we also know for Roman uh, day calendars, uh, just like uh, Americans, for those people watching, started their days at midnight. So day was not from sunset to um uh, from sundown to sundown, but instead Roman days were from midnight to midnight. And that's how, uh, if you're an American 21st century like me, watching this video, listening to this podcast, um, what you'll know is that your day starts at midnight and ends at midnight, and that's the same as the Roman day. That's the same way the Romans uh, established their day. So uh, what we could see easily going on here is that uh, quite possibly... For Matthew um, and for Mark and for Luke, they're just going off of these different uh, days. I just want to read this really quickly to you. Uh, from This is a quote from the Gospel of Mark, the Suffering Servant Orthodox Bible Study Companion. The chronology of the transfiguration is difficult to determine with accuracy. 
Comparing this account with those of the other synoptic gospels, it would appear that the event took place after nightfall, one week after the Lord's prediction of it in the previous verse, perhaps after midnight. This was reckoned by St. Mark as six days later, and then parenthetically it says, not counting the time after nightfall as another day, but as still a part of the previous day, and that's the end of the parenthetical, perhaps to make it conform to the glory of Moses on Mount Sinai. I do believe that's what's going on here in Mark's gospel. According to Exodus 24, 16, which I'll just read for you, uh, the glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from within the cloud. Again, that's Exodus 24, 16. I do think that Mark is trying to shadow that event with his rendering of the days. Um, and, and he can do that uh, with accuracy with his uh, calendar available to him. Moses was called up, continue the quote, to have communion with God in his glory after the cloud of his presence had settled on the mountaintop for six days. It would seem that St. Mark meant his Jewish years to make the connection between Moses and Christ. If the event did happen after midnight, that would explain the variant reckoning of Luke chapter 9, verse 28, where I'll quote, it says, Now eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. So if the event happened after midnight, which seems to be the case, Jesus was clearly praying into the night, as we see in Luke. I would explain this variant. Uh, St. Luke seems to have reckoned the day Christ uttered the prediction and the day of the post-midnight event as uh, one day each. So he said that the event took place after eight days. There need not be any real discrepancy between this and St. Mark's computation of it as occurring after six days if Christ uttered his prediction on Monday afternoon and the event happened very early the following Monday morning, say at 2 a.m., uh, then the perceived contradiction is removed. St. Mark would count Monday to Tuesday as one day and the event happening late Sunday night for a total reckoning of six days, while St. Luke would count each Monday to be one day and the event as happening early Monday for a total reckoning of eight days. So boy, that was a mouthful. I hope I didn't put all you guys to sleep and bore you. But I just want to explain that. Um, I try to deal with any possible discrepancy, any possible argument that would come up against the veracity, uh, the truthfulness of Scripture. And so I just wanted to read that to you. So six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately, and he was transfigured before them. The other thing I want to point you to in verse 2 here, which is really important, is again, just like the healing of that little girl in the home where only the three, Jesus and the parents, were present um, in that room when she was brought from death to life. Um, again, we see another episode here in the Gospel of Mark in which only these same three brothers are invited into the event, invited to witness uh, something miraculous. And um, there's different interpretations as to why this happened. I believe that uh, these three brothers were the closest to Jesus, were his inner circle, and that uh, he had a close, uh, closer relationship with them, maybe in regards to their faith as well. Um, so the end of verse 2 says, He was transfigured before them. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. He's literally changed. And as we're going to go on to see in these next verses, he literally begins to embody his glory, his glorified state, his glorified body. He begins to 
show his, his true identity. As we know that Jesus uh, was not born by Mary, that's not when he was born from Mary, but that's not when he began to exist, but rather he's existed from eternity past uh, with the Trinity, with the Father and the Spirit uh, from eternity past. And so he merely began his incarnation um, when he uh, was within the womb of Mary within uh, his lifetime there on earth. But his existence has been for all eternity. And so uh, he is transfigured before them. It says in verse 3, his clothes became radiantly white. I love how Mark puts it. He says, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them, right? Or more so than you could get done at, uh, at the cleaners. Uh, I love also how this is rendered in um, the other synoptic gospels. I'll just read for you Matthew 17, 2. It says, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So, Take these different eyewitness uh, accounts, renderings of this testimony. Uh, we know that John Mark's gospel was from the fountain of Peter, who was there at this event. And we know, uh, likewise, these, these other testimonies um, are, are very important. So um, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as uh, light. And then um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, the way it's rendered and recorded, it says, as he was praying... As Jesus would often pray into the middle of the night, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. So I just wanted to read you those two other stories. So it's not just his clothes that are glowing, it's his face that is glowing. It's, it's his whole being and it's not something reflective, rather it's emanating from within, from who he is, from himself. And so he becomes radiantly white. His face is shining like the sun. If you can picture this, and again, remember that he takes them up on this isolated high and holy mountain uh, as the different gospels explain it. And it's only Peter, James, and John. It says he takes them alone up privately. So these were the only ones around to witness this event that we're about to explain in further detail. The world could not bleach them that white. Jesus is transfigured in, in front of them. Verse 4, it says, Then Elijah appeared before them along with Moses. This is one of the craziest verses in the entire Bible. Then Elijah appeared before them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So um, it seems like uh, I almost want to say that Jesus is getting some pep talk before he goes to the cross. Um but what we see here is that two of the most significant figures of Old Testament uh, scripture are found really right here on this mountain with Jesus. And so there's been different uh, interpretations as to explain the significance of Elijah and Moses. I'll give you my current thoughts and ideas, and um, th there may be things that I've missed, but, but this is extremely significant. Um, one of the reasons, which dates all the way back to origin, which I think is correct to say, um, is that Moses is very much so representative of the law. We see in the New Testament, especially in the gospel encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, sometimes they just quote Moses. They say, well, Moses said this. Other times they call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 
the, um, the writings of Moses, as we do know that Moses uh, was the one to record Genesis through Deuteronomy. Other times, uh, it may be referenced differently, but Moses is, is highly revered. He's highly significant, and uh, especially for people like, say, the Sadducees, that was the only uh, scriptures they received as authoritative, uh, whereas the Pharisees received both the uh, Torah and the prophets. So Moses uh, stands tall as a very important figure of Old Testament and to this day for Jewish people is extremely significant. Likewise, Elijah also is very, very important. Um, Elijah is what you could call the king of the prophets. Uh, we know that after Elijah came Elisha, uh, who was double in power, uh, even, even closing the ending of his life with uh, a dead body being dumped into his open grave and then coming back to life. So Elisha is significant. Elijah, his mentor and predecessor, is extremely important. But the thing I want you to take note of for his significance is the fact that he was scooped up before ever experiencing death. Uh, the Bible tells us in, in 2 Kings, I believe 1st or 2nd Kings, that he was scooped up in a chariot of fire and whisked away to heaven. Um, so these guys are extremely important in, um, in the Old Testament and are brought here to verify the um, sonship and, and identity of the Messiah. But that is not all. That's not it. That's not all what I want you to see. Here's the other thing I want to bring up because there's so much parallel here. Likewise, with everything I've already stated, also Elijah and Moses both went to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai to go and hear directly from God, to speak from God. So we know that um, in Exodus, um, in the book of Exodus, Moses is called up to the mountain to speak with God alone. We know that him along with the leaders are up, go up the mountain and witness God in a certain sense as he descends like a cloud, as we'll see is the same exact um, scenario, similar that happens here at the Transfiguration. We know Moses and the leaders go up uh, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, um, and they go up here. And after six days, as I believe Mark is alluding to here in chapter nine, verse two, where he says six days later, Jesus took with him the three. Um, after six days with Moses, uh, he is then called by God into the cloud, into privacy, only God and Moses alone to then receive the Ten Commandments and the teachings of God, the stone tablets, along with all the teachings of God. So I want you to note this and also know that it was within a 40-day fast that Moses received this miraculous revelation from God. So with that being mentioned, um, Moses is significantly important. Uh, if you're watching this by video, just got a little uh, figure to show you. I got these two guys in Israel, quick commercial break for my podcasters. Uh, here we got um, Elijah the prophet um, that I got in Israel, just a little uh, model of him. And uh, I don't worship these or pray to these. And then here's uh, Moses, little cute wood carving guy right there. Um, so needless to say, this, this story is very important to me and I think contains so much. Um, also got my man Moses there. It's a funny story how I haggled that guy down from the price. But anyways, um, these guys are super important. 
Moses, even in this wood rendering, if you're watching this from the video, if you see what he's holding, I believe it's the Hebrew uh, lettering for numbers, uh, excuse me, Hebrew numbers for one through 10. So we associate the law, the Torah with Moses um, emphatically. And with Elijah, uh, he in very much so could be a representative of the prophets. So the law and the prophets are all pointing to Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's rewind back to what I was saying before I gave you my uh, puppet show. Um, what I want you to see with Moses with these 40 days um, and 40 nights of fasting before the Lord, we see the same thing happen with Elijah before he goes to the same exact mountain, uh, Mount Horeb or, or Mount Sinai, in which he's headed there after uh, this nasty woman, who is also called Jezebel, um, has threatened his life and him fearing to be the last among the prophets um, is going to seek after God and he goes to this mountain knowing where it is, knowing that that's where God met with Moses. Uh, it's revered as a holy mountain. And on his way there, an angel stops him um, and he forces him to eat bread because he tells him, look, this journey ahead of you is very going to be very severe. It's going to be very hard. If you don't eat this bread, you're going to die. And so in his depression, um, Elijah is fed bread from the Lord um, in a certain sense from the angel and then goes on, wait for it, to perform a 40-day fast and go up this same mountain. So there's something special um, about this. Um, and, and without you know going into speculation or anything like that, I just want to bring up these Old Testament stories for you because I think they're significant for this story and they parallel so much and line up so much. And without that Old Testament backdrop and backstory, um, you miss the meaning and, and the profoundness of this passage. So Elijah appeared before them along with Moses and it says, and they were talking with Jesus. Others have also said that quite possibly uh, Moses is representative of the law and the prophets and that Elijah is representative of the last days, the end times. I think that's also uh, very possibly uh, containing some truth in that, in that uh, we know, as we talked about, uh, if you didn't watch Mark chapter 1, part 1, that is such an essential uh, key to understanding the entirety of the gospel according to Mark. But... In brief, we see the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 40 and the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 and 4, in which it is prophesied that before the coming day of the Lord, that Elijah will be present. So in a very real sense, that, that prophecy, quite frankly, is fulfilled maybe in two or three ways. We know from earlier in chapter Mark that this prophet Elijah, in a very real way, um, is John the baptizer uh, who is fulfilling this. He is one like Elijah, uh, as John Mark goes on to say, and he is the fulfillment of that prophecy as the forerunner of Yahweh. Also, uh, we know that uh, it's very uh, also true that there is a fulfillment of that prophecy here with the transfiguration where literally the man himself, Elijah, is meeting with Jesus. And so he has truly showed up and come before the uh, day of the Lord, before God's reckoning with mankind. And so Elijah has shown up to usher in the end times that began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And as I said, it's quite possibly going to be fulfilled in a third way um, with the book of Revelation, depending on how you interpret that, in which there are two witnesses. And uh, as it stands now, I'm no Bible scholar, but I tend to lead, uh, lend myself towards believing that the two uh, who return will be both Elijah and possibly Enoch. So uh, with all that being said, um, I just wanted to point that out. Um, Elijah appearing with Moses uh, and Jesus, it's not just two random guys for no reason that are showing up. There's so much theological significance of what's going on here. Um, and, and along with that, as I was just explaining from Malachi chapter 3 and 4, some of this is fulfillment of prophecy. And so it says in verse 5, it says, So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This seems to be that Peter was uh, quite possibly confused and um, was wanting to uh, maybe do something and set up something that Jesus wasn't trying to do. I just want to quote from uh, the CSB Study Bible, the notes. It says, the three shelters Peter mentioned relate to the Jewish custom of building booth-like shelters during the uh, festival of shelters or the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing, that we find in Leviticus 23, 39 through 43, chapter th uh, 23, verse 39 through 43. Perhaps Peter wished to prolong this experience as was custom to that Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters. It says perhaps uh, Peter wished to prolong this experience, but his words wrongly implied equality among the three persons. Uh, it seems like what Peter wanted to do, according to that Feast of Tabernacles, um, they would set up temporary dwelling places for a, a full week, seven days. And uh, it seems like maybe, uh, while I'm not entirely sure, that, that Peter thought that what they were witnessing with this miraculous encounter is that it is now happening, like Jesus is establishing his kingdom Here's Elijah, here's Moses, it's happening right now. And what he's missing is the, the common problem with Judaism and what they miss with Christianity is that Judaism, rightly so, saw the coming of the Messiah. What they missed is that it was going to happen in two parts. So in the first part is what they missed. That's what's always being misinterpreted. They see him as a king, they see him as a conqueror. And while he was that, he was also the prophesied suffering servant that we see in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 and also in many other places in the Old Testament. He is both king and suffering servant. Well, as maybe the Jews of the day and still today only see one coming of Yahweh, which is in conquering and in power, but they miss the suffering servant uh, who was to come. And likewise, it seems very possible that Peter had missed that, that distinction there, which would be easy to do. And so Peter says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And we get a parenthetical note, which is verse six from John Mark, where John Mark, to explain it, he says, for they were afraid and he did not know what to say. So we get that Peter is confused. He's saying that he's terrified, rightly so, because of what he's witnessing take place in front of him. And he offers up that explanation. And what we see here 
is some clarification for Peter, for the three, of what's actually going on, which is then passed down to us in the scriptures. And what I wanted to mention, uh, also there's a quotation from the writings of Moses, which I'll get to after we talk about what God says in, in the cloud audibly to them. So it says uh, in verse 7, it says, Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. And the voice says, this is my one dear son, listen to him. Okay, this is very important, significant for many reasons. Verse 7 of chapter 9 tells us that a cloud comes upon them on this mountain. Think back to Moses. This is exactly how God appeared to the Israelites. It's how he appeared to Moses and um, gave him the Ten Commandments. He's on this mountain and this cloud descends. We see as well overtones that speak to um, Elijah encountering God in which he goes to the same mountain and God speaks to him. Here in this event, we have both of these guys present in which that happened, Moses and Elijah. And we also have uh, Jesus in which the Father speaks audibly and Peter, James, and John get the great honor of witnessing it with their own eyeballs of um, God audibly speaking, saying, this is my one dear son, listen to him. So this is extremely significant. It, sh it goes back to uh, Moses, I think is why that uh, Mark times it at six days uh, within it being factually correct with the Jewish calendar. And likewise, six days to point back to the event with Moses. The other thing I want to point out with this verse is that there is something prophetic that Moses tells the Israelites. And I, I want to read that to you uh, just briefly. We find this in the, the book of Deuteronomy. It's uh, chapter 18, verse 15, uh, where Moses, he says this, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This is clearly uh, prophetically pointing to Christ uh, and maybe has some dual fulfillment, but is in a way pointing to Christ because he is raised up from amongst the Israelites. And just as you see in uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, where um, I'll just read that again. Uh, the, the ending of the verse, he says, uh, a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him, okay? Deuteronomy 18.15, now let me read to you the audible voice of God on the mountain of transfiguration in uh, verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my one dear son. Listen to him. Okay, so my one dear son, we know this is a, a prophecy concerning the Messiah, the heralded king of Psalm 2. And we see uh, Moses uh, to listen to him. In Psalm 2, also this speaks to the prophecies of Isaiah. And all this together is culminating into the identity of the Son of God. Um, it says, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. The last thing I want to mention, and I know this is such a jam-packed passage, there's two more things that I want to mention to you uh, concerning this passage. Uh, the first is that, I want to mention to you uh, Peter's interpretation of this event that we get from uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. 
And this is verse 16 through 21. I just want to read this to you. Uh, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory through the cloud. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. Again, prophetic confirmation of Psalm 2 over the Messiah who is Jesus the Christ. Verse 18 says, When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, verse 19, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Um, he says in, in verse 20, Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So without the temptation to, uh, the temptation to expound all the, on the profoundness of 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll save that for another day. I love that passage as well. But I wanted to bring up that passage as Peter commentates on that event uh, while we're here in uh, Mark uh, chapter 9. The last thing that I, I want to bring up for you in Mark chapter 9 is this. What God says, God the Father, through this uh, theophany, this, this cloud that manifests on this mountain, he says, this is my one dear son. He's confirming him. Uh, he's confirming all these prophecies that point to a messianic king, the savior, the Messiah. He's also, um, as Elijah and Moses stand beside him, uh, amongst these three, the father says, focus on Jesus. Here's Moses, here's Elijah, but here's my son, right? He, here is the one, pay attention to him, listen to him. And I want you to see that because so often in tradition, the Jews, they were guilty of exalting Moses when Moses was waiting for Jesus. So often they would um, exalt Elijah when Elijah was looking to Jesus. Both of these men, while profoundly important and significant, were just men. That They were helpless without their God. They were helpless without Jesus. And in, in uh, con contrast to this, Jesus is the Son. He is a divine being. He is... Uh, the second member of the Trinity, he has authority and power within himself. It is not something that has been received, but rather is inherent within him. So um, I wanted you to see that. And the last thing in this verse, he says, this is my one dear son, listen to him. So it seems to lend to the truth that they still have more to learn from Jesus and they're still missing some certain things. As I said, concerning Peter wanting to set up three uh, temporary dwelling places, I think that there is a certain aspect in which the identity of the Messiah and the purpose of the suffering servant has been missed. It seems to be that they think still, they're still missing the reality that Jesus, while he has come in power, he has not yet come to um, complete human history. He has not yet come to finish the mission and establish his kingdom, but yet wanting more people to come to the knowledge and saving faith, 
He is only here to uh, establish his kingdom, but not to complete his kingdom. And so um, notice that Peter, and quite frankly, probably all the disciples are missing this. They think that the as the, the Jews uh, confuse, Jesus has not one showing up to earth. Yahweh has not one coming to earth, but Yahweh has two comings to earth. The first time as a suffering servant and conqueror, the second time as the culmination and in judgment. Um, so, so notice that there, that's such an important part um, that as we spoke of, and I did a, a video recorded earlier that uh, I'll try to link here uh, in the video explaining the uh, baptism of Jesus where we got this event um, where the father recognizes the son, where as I explained it in this video that I just linked to, I'd really strongly encourage you to watch that. While Jesus has been concealed to just about everybody, he is now being revealed to the inner circle. And so while Jesus, um, his miraculous deeds were being performed, his identity as the, the Messiah, but not only as the king, but also as the suffering servant, is now about to be revealed. And so we see uh, this prophecy of Psalm 2 uh, given to both John the baptizer and Jesus within his baptism, but now John the Baptist is dead, and only Jesus um, would have been the witness to that event, as I understand that section of Scripture. Now, all three of this inner circle is being brought into this Psalm 2 prophecy confirmation. And so they are now witnessing the divine sonship. Uh, likewise, as was baptism, there was miraculous things taking place. Now here, miraculous things, signs and wonders are accompanying this authoritative claim. And so um, it says, suddenly they look around, verse 8, and uh, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, concealing this. So while this is, uh, in, in my interpretation, the first revealing to the inner circle, it is still something that he asked to conceal. And he tells them not to tell anyone, not even the other uh, amongst the 12 are to know about this event. And the reason for this, the reason absolutely no one knows except for the three, is because um, Jesus um, is come and his mission is to die as the suffering servant, according to prophecy. And this cannot be happen. Uh, it cannot happen if he is already crowned as king before the time. And so his uh, messiahship in that sense is concealed, but he is trying to reveal it to them. Verse 10, it says, they kept this statement to themselves uh, amongst the three discussing what this rising from the dead meant. That verse is so funny to me because Jesus is always speaking in parables. And so they're always trying to interpret and understand his parables. And here in chapter 9, verse 10, when Jesus says he's going to rise from the dead, they're so accustomed to him speaking in parables that they miss that this time it's actually literal. He's literally going to rise from the dead. Uh, so that's just a funny passage to me. Um, they're always getting confused, rightly so. Verse 11, it says, Then they asked him, Why do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? Verse 12, He said to them, Elijah does indeed come first and restores all things. 
Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be despised? But I tell you that Elijah has certainly come, and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. So a couple things we see in this passage, as I just explained uh, just now, um, they're asking Jesus, seemingly still the three here, and they're asking him about interpretation of the Old Testament. They say, why do the experts in the law say Elijah must come first? Again, as you should know, if you've been watching this uh, series, we know that Elijah, uh, excuse me, that uh, Malachi chapter three and four explain this. It gives prophecy to say that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day. And so uh, he says to them, Elijah does indeed come first and restores all things. And in this sense, Jesus is explaining John the Baptist, as we see confirmed by John Mark earlier on in this gospel, according to Mark, that John the Baptist is a representative of Elijah. He is Elijah in that sense, prophetically. So when Jesus says, Elijah doesn't he come first and restores all things, he was speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. And then he goes on to say, Jesus says, and why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be despised? And we know from Isaiah 53 that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. We see that, and Jesus is trying to bring this up to them. Because as I already stated, they're missing it. They're conflating the two comings of Yahweh into one. And instead of seeing him coming as a suffering servant and then coming to complete his kingdom, they're, they're jamming it all into one. That, that's probably the biggest misconception between Judaism and Christianity, one of them at least. And so Jesus recognizing that they still don't understand that, that the story is more extended than they're seeing. The story is more complex. The coming of Yahweh is more complex than they had previously understood. So because of that, he brings up that's why it says, why is it written? Whenever you see it is written, it's a reference to scripture. So Jesus is bringing back up, why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be despised? They were not accounting the Isaiah prophecies. They were not accounting the suffering servant of God. They were not accounting for uh, the Messiah who's not only king, but also suffering servant. And so then he goes on to say, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has certainly come and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. And so again, uh, as this was written about Elijah, likewise, this is mentioned of John the Baptist, and they did whatever they wanted to him in the sense that they chopped his head off. And we explained that earlier. And so Jesus is explaining how some things are John the Baptist as Elijah, other things are speaking to Elijah the prophet, um, so don't get these confused. He goes on to say uh, in verse 14, it seems that what happens here is that Jesus, along with the three, arrives back down at the bottom of the mountain. Again, the episode is concealed amongst the three, not to be told or shared with anyone. And Jesus and the inner circle come to find and encounter an event that is taking place with the disciples and a crowd of people. It says in verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and experts in the law arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran at once and greeted him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? 
a member of the crowd said to him, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do so. Now, there's a couple significant things you need to notice. The first thing that you need to notice is that earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus gave the authority to the twelve for healing and for casting out demons. So the fact that they cannot do this is significant. The other thing that I want you to notice is that this spirit um, is causing muteness, causing this boy to be unable to speak. And he likewise has seized him, has thrown him down, caused him to foam at the mouth, and it causes him to grind his teeth, cause him to be rigid or extremely challenging to be around. And so I just want you to notice those characteristics, those various details of things going on. It says in verse 19, he answered them, him being Jesus, you unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. What we see in verse 19 is Jesus is extremely frustrated and he's frustrated for a couple reasons. First of all, he's frustrated because amidst, imagine the scene, he, he is being revealed to the inner circle as the Messiah in many ways. And amidst this revealing of God, these profound things that are taking place, there are certain people that still do not uh, realize uh, his power. Also, I think this is a rebuke towards uh, both the crowd and to um, the disciples. The disciples that he's already given the power to are not able to cast out the demon. So when Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? Uh, how much longer must I endure you? He's extremely frustrated with his disciples because they cannot cast out the demon. Likewise, he's frustrated with the, the scribes and the crowd because uh, they, they are still challenging him. They're still not aware that he is uh, sent from God and he's just had his uh, limit, if you will. In verse 20, it says, so they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, as we've seen in other demonic possession or demonization episodes, whenever the spirits, the evil spirits, the unclean spirits see Jesus, they know who he is. More so than the crowds, more so than the disciples. So this episode is not different. When the spirit saw him, being the unclean spirit, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. What I want you to see in verse 21 is that demons have uh, power over those who are far from God. And what I would tell you, what I learned in my, my whole Bible, especially in the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus is truly the only uh, saving grace for those afflicted by the demonic. And likewise, uh, as sometimes we're told that it's certain things that could happen uh, that cause demonization. Uh, for this one, it is from childhood. We're not told the reasons behind the possession, but that this spirit has been afflicting this boy, uh, which has uh, seemingly caused him much 
grief and suffering for possibly many, many years from childhood. So it's at least a couple years. It says in verse 22, uh, it has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. So this demon is causing suicidal tendencies with the demoniac, the one who had the legion. We see that that the demons inside of him would cause him to cut himself. So uh, not only self-harm, but also suicidal tendencies uh, accompany demonic oppression, demonization. So not to say whenever there are self-harm in present in someone's life or whenever there are suicidal thoughts or tendencies, there's always demon possession. We do see, uh, while not every case, whenever there are demons, it seems like this accompanies that. So that's something, a uh, side effect uh, for you counselors out there to take into, um, take to heart that this boy is afflicted by demons and it is causing him to have suicidal tendency. It is causing him to self-harm. And then that is the demon within him. It's not a mental disorder. It's a demonic possession. So um, notice what he says here in the latter half of verse 22. He says, um, let me just read all 22. It has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. And then this man, the, the father of this son who's approached Jesus goes on to say, but if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What, what a low blow. This man is coming before God himself and he's questioning his authority. He's questioning his ability. He's questioning his capacity to help, to, to have authority over demons. And, and we see that this offends Jesus. Um, the man says, if you're able, because you might not be, right? And, and, and that's not what the text says, but what I'm saying is uh, there's severe doubt in this man. He says, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, it says, then Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. So Jesus corrects him, his lack of faith, um, and he corrects him, and he also gives him uh, some clarity, some clarification by saying all things are possible for the one who believes. So it's not that the son is capable or incapable, but that the son is capable for those who believe, for the one who believes. Then verse 24, we see some repentance with the father, Verse 24 says, immediately the father of the boy cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So the father does profess faith and does profess that his faith is inadequate, but he needs help from the son to help his unbelief. Um, and so that is enough for Jesus. That mustard seed of faith is more than enough for Jesus to work on his behalf. Verse 25 says, now when Jesus saw that a crowd was quick gathering, quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. So again, what I want you to notice in verse 25, Jesus again trying to conceal his identity. It says when Jesus saw the crowd quickly gathering, people are starting to show up. It's starting to get big. He then is going to close out this teaching session. He wants to cast out the demon and get out of there. Because again, he is trying to conceal his identity and the crowds are gathering. So now when Jesus saw a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Again, we see here with this verse, Jesus's inherent authority, not an, an alien authority, but a personal authority that he has 
Verse 26, it says, it shrieked, threw him into terrible convulsions because we know the boy, while Jesus is having a conversation with this man, the boy's in the background having convulsions rolling around on the ground. We see then after Jesus commands this demon that it shrieks, letting out a demonic shriek and throws him into terrible convulsions. So the convulsions worsen. Uh, to be sure, this is a severe episode that no one would quickly forget. And it says, threw him into terrible convulsions and came out. So the demon did not leave without first uh, shrieking and convulsing. Then it says, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he is dead. Uh, to be sure, this, this body that has been used by a demon for many years is exhausted. This boy is exhausted. And although the demons are cast out, um, this boy's uh, vessel has been used for as a puppet for years. And so, to be sure, he's worn out and is laying there like a corpse. It says, but Jesus gently took his hand and raised him to his feet, and he stood up. So what I want to say as well, and this probably isn't something... Uh, we'll commonly deal with. But for exorcism, the one in suffering, the one in torment, it's not the boy, it's the demon within the boy. He's shrieking, he's convulsing, and this is the demon suffering, but it's taking place within the body of the child. And so sometimes these things are necessary to take place uh, before someone is completely delivered. I just wanted to mention that. In these last two verses, it says, uh, then after he went into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? He told them this kind can come out, excuse me. He told him this kind can come out only by prayer. Now don't confuse this verse with other gospels that say it can only come out with prayer and fasting. Uh, all the textual manuscript traditions does say uh, prayer in some later manuscript traditions, add fasting as fasting was such a vital part to the early church, to the early church fathers. Um, but uh, we know sometimes fasting accompanies prayer. But it seems to be uh, what he's saying, the, the way I would encourage you to interpret this is that Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Matthew gave these, these brothers, these 12, inherent authority to cast out demons. So at the command of the 12, because Jesus gave it to them, they could cast out demons. Whereas this demon, there's a hierarchy of power. This demon is so powerful that upon the command of mere men alone, although given authority by God, it's not enough. And so what we see here is that even the um, apostles, while they have authority from Jesus to cast out demons, for this powerful of a demon, they cannot cast it out except through appealing to prayer to God. So I think this could translate a teaching point for any of you exorcists out there. There are some demons that we may have imminent authority as sons of God, adopted sons of God, as children of God, as Christians to cast out. There may be some demons that are so powerful that even with our authority vested in us within Christ, we have to appeal to God. Um, through prayer to cast it out. I would encourage if you're ever in a scenario like this, this is never done something something done alone, always with a, a group, uh, at least two uh, strong believers. And I'd also encourage and challenge you to always be praying uh, in every situation just like this. But uh, that's not neither here nor there. 
So that's the ending of the first half of Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 29. A profound teaching, an important passage. This is close to an hour long, but uh, whether you agree with it, me or not, this transfiguration passage is worth it. Uh, there's so much to be unpacked for this. Um, so I hope this has been a blessing to you. Hope you tune in for the latter half of chapter 9. And I hope you pray on, think through, and meditate on the significance of the transfiguration and all that has occurred. Maybe this is a, a podcast or video worth watching or listening to more than once. Likewise, it is worth a revisit to your Old Testament concerning these two individuals. Hope this has been a blessing, and uh, I'll hope to see you for Mark chapter 9, part 2. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.